All right, me again. Uh, sorry to disappoint. Through some last-minute illness and travel plans, uh, you're stuck with me uh, from start to finish this morning. Uh, if you have a Bible, though, open it up to Luke chapter 10, uh, verses 25 through 37, we're going to be looking at this morning. Uh, if you're new to Crosspoint, uh, any time in the last year, one of the things we like to do is every January, we take some time at the beginning of the year to reorient ourselves around God's mission, around God's pursuit for justice in our world. Uh, Jesus himself taught us to pray, Father, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so what's God's will? What's his mission? It's his justice. It's his passionate commitment to the dignity of his creation. And so last week, Pastor Jamie started our series off by looking at what God's justice is, and uh, now we're going to spend the next few weeks looking at how God's justice affects certain things, like uh, race next week, um, and we'll spend some time reflecting on the ministry of Dr. King, uh, church planting, uh, and our topic for today, the sanctity of life. Now, the conversations around the sanctity of life in our country have a, a long history of either-or, choose-your-side suspicion and characterization that sadly leaves us missing out on seeing Jesus Christ love more people back to life in our community. And so to help us cut to the core of this, we're going to look at an, an old story, a famous story, and see if it can't show us something new this morning. So follow with me as I read Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. Luke writes, On one occasion, an expert in the law, a lawyer, stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked him, What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? What's written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you'll live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him and passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan... As he traveled, came where this man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine on him. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, enough to cover him for 24 days, and gave it to the innkeeper and said, look after him. And when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think 
was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of robbers. The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus said, go and do likewise. Uh, Who your neighbor is can change everything, can it? When Beck and I lived in Boston, we were in the city, it was street parking only, and in the winter, if you left for work in the morning before the snowplow came, he would come by and completely bury your parking spot in snow. It was useless, it was gone, forget about it. You were walking blocks to get home. And so if you had the, uh, the, the chance, though, to leave for work after the snowplows came, your spot was open. It would stay clear all day. And so what people would do is they would take a chair from their house and they would put it down in their spot to kind of claim it as my spot here, okay? And uh, one day I am up in the, we lived in a duplex, I'm on the top floor, I hear this commotion going on outside. And uh, I look outside and I see one of our neighbors uh, had, had his spot snowed in by the plow, and so when he came home from work, he thought, I'm just going to take my neighbor's chair, put it up on the sidewalk, and then just park my car in his parking spot that he had been saving all day. And, and it was audacious, and what ensued was the most perfectly Boston thing you could have imagined possible. Two grown men outside in the middle of winter in nothing but white tank tops uh, yelling at each other who can park their car in which parking spot. It, it was worth every bit of the ridiculous rent that we were paying to live there. Bad neighbors can change everything, but good neighbors can change everything too. You know, one of my favorite movies is Forrest Gump. A, a classic period piece, uh, a cultural commentary, and yet at its core is a tale of two neighbors. It's, it's a tale of Forrest Gump being the type of neighbor who will love Jenny Curran back to life. Well, for the half-dead man in a ditch, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, who his neighbor was was a matter of life and death. Mugged, stripped, beaten within an inch of his life, his only hope is that somebody will stumble upon him. Someone who will be the type of neighbor that will love him back to life. And what Jesus is asking through this parable is, are you that type of neighbor? Because For those in our community whose life or livelihood is at stake, the way you answer that question this morning is a matter of life and death. It's not a parable to them. What type of neighbor am I? What type of neighbor do I want to be? in order to become the type of neighbor that Jesus is calling us to be this morning, there's three things that we need to look at in this parable. The question of who, the answer of love, and then the cry of need. So first, the question of who. This, This famous parable all happens... Because as Luke writes, on one occasion, a a lawyer, an expert in the law of the Bible, stood up to test Jesus. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? 
And Jesus says, well, you're the expert in the law. You're the subject matter authority on this matter. What, what does it say? And the man replies by, by quoting two Old Testament verses. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, yep, you got it. Do that perfectly, and you'll live. Now, this man has just openly challenged Jesus and walked away unscathed. But it wasn't enough for him. No, he decides, I'm going to break the first rule of gambling, know when to walk away. He says, yeah, but who is my neighbor, Jesus? Now, there's a little bit of context for his question, okay? The second verse that he quotes is from Leviticus 19, which says that you should love your neighbor as yourself, neighbor there being any fellow Israelite, or as the chapter later explains, any immigrant who is living in Israel with you. In other words, this lawyer is trying to say, okay then, Jesus, how can I spot who belongs to God's people that I have to love and who doesn't that I don't have to love? It's a question of exclusion. Who can I deem a non-neighbor? Who can I ignore? It's the same question we're asking today. A James Davison Hunter, who's a professor at the University of Virginia, who uh, coined a couple decades ago the phrase culture war, uh, recently said that while in the 80s and 90s, uh, the biggest point of division in our country was over abortion, today it's become over race, meaning we're still stuck on the neighbor question. We're still stuck on this lawyer's reply, yeah, but who is my neighbor, Jesus? Only for us, it's not so much a debate that we have between us and Jesus, but between ourselves. Who do we have to stick up for? Who do we have to sacrifice for? And though we would never state it this plainly, who can we ignore? Well, there's this spectrum that we all fall on of how we answer that question. And, and broadly in our culture, you kind of put it this way. On one far end of the spectrum, there are people who are more politically conservative, who are more concerned with life inside the womb. And then down on the far end of the other side of the spectrum uh, are people who are more politically liberal, who are more concerned with life outside the womb. And the two ends cannot meet on this neighbor question. People at the furthest, furthest end of the conservative side might say, well, I would, I would care for the poor, but didn't they kind of bring this on themselves? And if a poor person's overweight, maybe they say, well, they, I mean, they don't look like they're starving. I'd give them money, but they'll probably just use it on drugs. And, and shouldn't we just be caring for Americans anyways? I mean, who knows? Is this person even here legally? And people far down on the liberal end of the political spectrum 
look at something like abortion and say, oh my goodness, that is so oppressive. I mean, what about the woman's choice? It's her body. And do you, do you know how much of a risk it is for a mom to deliver a baby? And, and is a fetus even a person? I mean, biological life, yes, but, but does it deserve rights just like I deserve? And wherever you land on that spectrum, the whole problem with the debate is that both sides are right and wrong. Both sides unneighbor one type of person that, as we'll see, Jesus is calling you to neighbor. And so from this question of who comes Jesus' answer of love. Jesus replies to this man's question by telling him one of the most famous stories in all of history. He says in verse 30, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now in Jesus' day to get from Jerusalem to Jericho, you had to walk down this 17-mile road that, because of all of its turns and rocks and caves, had become notorious for muggings. And he says, as this man's walking down the road, he's jumped, they steal his money, strip him, beat him, and leave him for dead. And as this man is lying there, clinging to life. Miracle of miracles. Who comes strolling down the path? A priest and a Levite. Now, priests were in charge of the worship in the temple, and the Levites were their assistants. You kind of think of it this way. The senior pastor and the worship minister come walking down the road. Surely one of these two pious men is going to help him out, right? But Jesus says they both do the same thing. They came, they saw, and they passed by on the other side. It's too risky. It's too dangerous. It could cost them too much to love this half-dead man in a ditch. And so he lays there. Until a third person comes. Not a priest, not a Levite, not even a layman. A Samaritan. Now, uh, Samaritans were Jewish people who had married non-Jewish people and then made their own way to worship God. The Jews hated the Samaritans. To men like this lawyer talking to Jesus, a Samaritan was, was racially a half-breed, religiously a heretic. And Jesus says the Samaritan came and saw and had compassion for this man. He picks him up, he puts him on his donkey, he stays the night, he pays the cost, and he loves this man back to life. And through this story, Jesus is answering the lawyer's question in the most provocative way possible. The lawyer had asked Jesus, who's my neighbor? Who can I ignore? Who don't I have to love? And Jesus tells a story where the hero is a hated Samaritan, and the man he helps is who? A certain man. 
No way to classify him. No way to categorize him, put him in any racial, religious categories whatsoever. He's anonymous, and that's the whole point. Jesus is saying what qualifies someone as your neighbor isn't race or religion, class or creed, it's need. That the moment someone's life or livelihood comes into question, they cease to be a stranger, they cease to be someone we can ignore, and they now become our neighbor. The only question left is, will we be theirs? And Jesus' answer of love here is a challenge to both sides of the neighbor debate that we're having right now. See, maybe you're on the far, far end of the politically conservative spectrum, and the, the poor, the immigrant, the oppressed have become a non-neighbor to you. Uh, how much have you let Jesus interact with the reasons you give to ignore them? You know, maybe you think, well, it's, it's kind of their fault. This person must be poor because they they've just haven't made good choices in life. They've made bad choices. Well, do you realize that while there is a host of complex factors that lead someone into poverty, almost nobody becomes poor without at some point along the way making an ill-advised choice. I mean, it happens, natural disaster, tornadoes, whatever. It's incredibly rare. So essentially, you'd be saying, well, I'm not going to help anybody then. But wasn't our spiritual bankruptcy our fault? I mean, how happy are you that God didn't say, you know, I would have sent my son Jesus, but it's kind of your fault. No! Or maybe you think, they're not starving. I mean, they got a car, they got a TV that's nicer than mine. They, the, you know, maybe they don't look like they're, you know, skipping meals. I mean, the pair of the man in the parable, he's, he's half dead, all right? He's clinging to life in a ditch. They're not. Well, do we wait until we're literally starving to meet our needs. Is anybody going to leave here today and, and just go through the day until you're almost about to collapse in hunger before you open up the cupboard? No! Better question. Does God wait until you're literally starving to meet your needs? No. So why should we wait until our neighbor is? Or maybe you think, America first, right? I mean, that's what this whole lawyer's question was to Jesus. Israel first. Israel only. Isn't that what it says? Right, Jesus? And what's Jesus' reply? Humanity first. Need first. I mean, how happy are you that God didn't say, you know what, heaven first, heaven only. We'll just let humanity just kind of muck it up about themselves all down around there. No! In fact, here's the good news. Not even that God's going to let us into heaven, but that God's going to bring heaven down to us. But it's not just those on the far, far, far end of the conservative spectrum that, that Jesus' answer of love challenges, but it's also those of us far, far down on the liberal end, to whom the unborn have become a non-neighbor. Now, I don't know everybody's story in this room, but uh, I know for some of us, this is a very personal issue. 
Maybe you've gotten an abortion. Maybe you know somebody close who's gotten an abortion. Maybe you're married to someone who had an abortion. Maybe you have regrets, confusion, shame that you carry with you that nobody else knows about. Wherever you're at on this, if you're pro-choice, we can all agree that every individual life deserves to be protected. The whole question is, when does a living thing become a person? Now, according to the Bible, personhood begins when life begins. So a fetus is a person. All right, modern thought, though, uh, tries to add something more than, than merely biological life, generally something focused on the mind, the brain, how it's working, to define who's a person and who's not. Meaning you're, you're not considered a, a person yet until you have certain cognitive, psychological, moral capacities that a fetus doesn't have. But have you thought through who else that might exclude? You see, if you read through modern thinkers on how they define a person, the, the mental capacities they use to define who is a person, you'll discover that there are actually many adults who don't count. People who are mentally handicapped, disabled, who have dementia, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, who've suffered brain damage, who are comatose. Now, in saying that a fetus isn't a person because they don't have certain mental capacities, then we're also saying there are plenty of adults today who are no longer a person because they don't have any of these mental capacities, and they should be allowed to be killed too. You might say, well, that, that sounds pretty brutal. I know. And is that a society that you want to be a part of? I don't think it is. But you know, for a lot of us, uh, the abortion topic is not as much a philosophical issue. We, we haven't read John Locke's theory on personhood. It's, it's an emotional issue. We're afraid the child is going to cost too much. This is why one-third of all unborn babies diagnosed with Down syndrome are terminated every year. Because they tip the cost-benefit ratio in the wrong direction. Well, what if what our economy-driven, meritocratic society has labeled a blessing, or has mislabeled a blessing, actually a curse? What if your career, your bank account, your retirement fund actually isn't what you're supposed to be living for, but connection, relationship, learning love by neighboring a person whose needs will always outpace yours? You see, Jesus takes the lawyer question, takes our question, and he colors completely outside the lines of anything we would have drawn up on our own. Who's my neighbor? Who do I have to love? Everyone. Or maybe you can say it this way, who can I ignore? Nobody. Nobody gets ignored, born or unborn, race, religion, class, creed, none of that makes somebody your neighbor. What makes them your neighbor is their need. 
So how can we become then the type of neighbor Jesus is calling us to be? How can we be someone who lives to uphold the sanctity of life from womb to tomb? Well, we need to see not just the question of who or the answer of love, but thirdly, the cry of need. Do you remember how this all started out? This expert in the law of the Bible challenges Jesus. What do I have to do to have eternal life? And Jesus said, well, what's the law say? And the man says, love the Lord your God, with your heart, soul, strength, mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, sounds like you got it. You see what Jesus did here? It's brilliant. You see, the lawyers were always hanging around Jesus because they thought he was just a little too loose with the law. I mean, look at the company he takes. Hangs out with prostitutes and tax collectors all day. And so they were waiting for any chance they could to pull the mask off of him and go, Aha! He's an imposter. We knew it. And so this man comes to Jesus, and Jesus says, Salvation? Keep the law. Try that one. Jesus has beaten this lawyer at his own game. Because Jesus is showing him through this parable the utterly impossible standards of a God of love, of a God who is moved with compassion for every person in every ditch in every part of the world. That this man can't for a second pretend to satisfy God's law. And Jesus' reply knocks him completely off balance. Because what does he say next? Right, but that doesn't mean everybody, right? You know what that is? That's the question of a man who's suddenly realizing he's falling into a ditch. Who's suddenly been stripped of what he clung to. His religious obedience that he thought would make him acceptable to God. Of someone who suddenly has nothing, nothing but desperate need. You see, what Jesus is trying to get this expert into the law to see is that he is that man in the ditch. That his good deeds will never satisfy the demands of a God of bottomless love. That he, not to hang him by his own rope, but to, but to lovingly knock him in the ditch so that he realizes he needs compassion. He needs mercy. He needs a neighbor. He needs Jesus. And the only way that we will become the neighbor that Jesus is calling us to be is when we let him lovingly knock us in the ditch too. When we realize that we will never be able to satisfy the demands and the standards of a God of every person, all people's love. When we own that there are people that, that we non-neighbor that I ignore, 
that we remove from the fraternity of humanity and relegate to the caste of insignificant. When we own that even when we show mercy and care for the vulnerable, it is shot through with selfish motivations. And no matter how much we stack up to the person next to us, it'll never get us one step closer to meeting the righteous demands of God. Because as the pastor John Stott used to say, you might be able to reach higher than the person next to you, but it doesn't get you any closer to touching the stars. And when we do that, it completely transforms this lawyer's question. Because when we see ourselves as the man in the ditch, now we're asking, who is going to be my neighbor? Who will stop for me? Who will risk his life for me? Who will show me a compassion that I could never deserve and never pay back? Who will show me love merely because I'm in desperate need? And what Jesus is trying to show you is that he is that neighbor. He is that neighbor who owed us nothing, yet sacrificed for us everything. He is that neighbor who we despised, yet was moved with compassion. He is that neighbor who touches our wounds, who carries us home, who stays the night, who accepts the cost and pays the price without ever wanting a penny in return, who didn't just risk his life to stop on the side of the road, but gave up his life being nailed to a cross, where he was stripped so you could be clothed where he was wounded so you could be healed, where he lost his life so you could inherit life, where he was left for dead so you could rise from the dead. Do you see? Jesus is the true neighbor, the great Samaritan, The one who didn't just come, see, and pass by on the other side, but came, saw, and was moved with compassion to die on a cross for those who walk past the poor, disregard the immigrant, downplay the oppressed, or terminate the unborn. All to offer to us the unprovoked mercy of God that loves you back to life. And so this is how you become the neighbor Jesus is calling you to be. This is how cold lawyers become compassionate Samaritans. This is how you become someone who loves back to life, the unborn, the poor, the immigrant, the oppressed, regardless of race, religion, class, or creed. You realize You're that half-dead man in the ditch, calling out, who's my neighbor? And you hear Jesus Christ with his dying breath say, I am. I am.
Now will you be one too? Let's pray. Father, we are, we are, apart from the work of your grace in our lives, we are that half-dead man in the ditch. Unable to, for a moment, satisfy your demands of love. Thank you that your son Jesus came and saw and was moved with compassion picks us up, stays the night, and loves us back to life. Holy Spirit, enliven our hearts with the incredible grace of our great Samaritan so that we could go and be a neighbor to those in need. Amen.